How do we reconcile the moral standards that we see in the Old Testament versus the moral standards of the New Testament? So when I refer to the Old Testament, I'm typically referring to specifically like Joshua and Judges, mm-hmm. um, where you mm-hmm. see the like Israelites going into Canaan mm-hmm. and conquering kingdoms, and it's saying to devote that all to utter destruction. Man, mm-hmm. woman, mm-hmm. livestock, mm-hmm. burned to the ground, killed. Mm-hmm. Um, you also see like the women being like made slaves or being like added into the family. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that you see the God of the New Testament says every life has their sanctity to life and that every life has meaning and I'm dying for that meaning. Mm-hmm. But yet you see all these people die. Well, let's... Have you ever been asked that question? Have you ever had that question? I was sitting in my office one morning when somebody came by to see me. I hadn't seen him in a long time. They had asked for some space. They'd attended Waypoint for a long time, and I gave them the space when they asked for it. And I thought, man, this is going to be great. This, we're going to catch up. I'm going to find out what's going on in their life. And it wasn't that kind of conversation. Uh, right out of the gate, um, he, he set out uh, to convince me that everything that I believed was wrong and that I needed to start teaching differently than what I was teaching and he just started going through a list of things uh, that I was off on. And I got to tell you, they were so fringe and out there, I did, not, I did not know where to enter into a conversation on this stuff. I was kind of dumbfounded. I'd never heard some of these theories and ideas before. I was like, okay. Um, and then he said, kind of out of the blue, because I, I was fishing. I'm trying to figure out how did he get there? How did he get from where he was to where he is right now in my office saying all of that stuff. And he said this, Blair, I don't know how you choose to follow a God who in the Old Testament was willing to kill women, children, and older people who were innocent. I don't know how you can choose to follow a God like that. And I thought for the first moment in the conversation, oh, we're getting somewhere. This is a good conver- This is a good question. That's great. Let's do that. And so I decided to engage, and I threw an idea out that I had on that. And he just brushed it aside and went on to the rest of the stuff. And it was there I realized he wasn't really interested in a conversation. What he wanted was for me to kind of do an about face on everything I believed in, the, in this little conversation here. And he left frustrated that I wouldn't do that. And, and as he left, I was disappointed that we didn't have a conversation about the one thing that I think could have revealed what his issues, like what is happening in your life that got you to this place? Because this is the question. It's a good one. Let me repeat it. How can you believe in a God who in the Old Testament killed women, children, elderly, innocent people, how can you choose to believe in a God like that? Now, there are some followers of Jesus who think this question shouldn't even be wrestled with. Uh, it's not, there's no discomfort as they read that section of Scripture. They don't see any problem with it at all. And we're going to talk about the kind of the beliefs they hold in a little bit. But for others... And I've talked with others. I've talked with others who are followers of Jesus. And they come to that section of Scripture and they don't know what to do with it. And it causes them real heartburn. How do I believe in this God when I see this kind of stuff in the Scriptures? I've talked to some people who were thinking about coming to God. And they look at the 
at the stuff in the Old Testament are like, I don't know if I can sign up for that. I don't know if I can get on board with that. And I think if you were thoughtful about it, you would conclude it's a little disturbing. It's just a little disturbing that in our text we have these kind of things happening. And the reason I think you probably would think it was disturbing is because it seems to be out of sync with the God that we've been learning about. The God who comes to Abram and says, hey, I want to start a nation. I, and and God, God has a plan that he sets out with Abram. This is what I want to do. I want you to see this. This is Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. I will make you a great nation, I, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. My goal is to set up this nation that will be blessed, but then turn around and bless the whole world. And then you look at some of the carnage that takes place. And you're like, is that the kind of blessing God was talking about? Is that what he had in mind? Now, I think primarily um, what they were talking about is God was setting up a nation through which Jesus would eventually come and be salvation for all of mankind. And that would bless us all. But that wasn't the only plan. Part of the plan is that Israel would live in such a way that others would look at them and say, that must be the right God. I want to follow that God. And they would bless the world this way. And yet, we see examples of kind of violence that just doesn't always make sense to us. Let me read to you what I'm talking about. Um, on the video, she talked about Joshua. That's where we're going to go. I want to uh, take you to a section of Scripture where uh, God gives instructions to Joshua. They come to a city called Jericho. He says, I'm going to give you some real specific things to do. I want you to walk around this way. I want you to do this. I want you to do this. And then this instruction is given, and we're, we're listening to Joshua's words telling the nation of Israel, this is what God said. This is verse 17 of chapter 6. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are in her household shall be spared because she hid the spies that we sent. Only Rahab. That does not sound good for everybody else. And in fact, in verse 21, you see how this plays out in practice. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Yeah, that does sound bad, but Blair, if it's just once, you know, maybe that's okay. Well, okay. Let's go to Joshua 11, verse 14. The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities, many, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. That's pretty definitive. It wasn't one place. It happened over and over. There are other verses like this in chapter 10, in chapter 11. There's more that, that use this similar language. And you look at this, and it's confusing because it doesn't match the God that we'd seen moving through Genesis. 
He's trying to set himself apart, and so he's introducing himself to this nation. And who he is is a kind and loving God, and so this doesn't make a ton of sense. This also doesn't make a lot of sense for us as a culture, because if we had somebody who did any of the things that I just read here, they're part of our military, and they did any of that, they would be up on war crimes. And we know that. And so we see this sort of stuff, and we're like, how could this be? How could a good God have this kind of stuff go on on his watch? How could he ask people to do this? Now, here's what I've discovered. When we come across very difficult sections of Scripture, um, people tend to respond to it in a few ways. There's only a few. One is you accept that it's there and you decide to wrestle with it. You decide to take that before God. You have conversations with others. You pray about it. You, you search the scriptures so that you can have an understanding of why God would include something so difficult in the text. Because he did it. He inspired somebody to write this down so that we could have this. Why? Why is this important to have recorded? So you wrestle with it. Or what's becoming popular these days, I think it's very risky and I just want to, just want to wave the flag. There are people who are doing what I call designer Christianity. They're coming to sections like this in the scriptures and others and they're saying, this is uncomfortable for me. I don't like it. Maybe people in the culture aren't comfortable with this. I'm just going to discard it. And I'm going to create a customized faith for myself. It's not Christianity. Christianity is centered on Christ. You are centering your belief system on what is comfortable for you. So when you do a designer system like that, you're creating your own thing. And a lot of people are doing that now, even in the church. Why? Because it's uncomfortable, it's hard, it's a difficult section of Scripture to read. The other thing you can do, and I've seen people do this too, is they just reject it. They avoid reading that section of Scripture. I'm just going to stay away from it. Or they conclude, I'm going to have to reject God. I'm I'm just going to reject anybody who would be associated with this. I'm out. I'm done. That's it. Those are your choices. Now, it's not going to come as a surprise to you that I have chosen to accept it and to wrestle with it. And I've been wrestling with this uh, section of Scripture and why it's in there for a little while. And here's what I want to do this morning. I, w- I want to bring you five options that followers of Christ over the years in Christendom have held views that try to el- help explain why God has this in the text. Why is this here? And some of these you'll hate. you just absolutely hate it. Like that... that That is dumb. Nobody should ever talk about that. Here's what I want to, I just want to ask you. Can you allow the conversations that need to happen on this to go on before you just write all of these off? You you may find a favorite one that's yours, but other people are going to be wrestling with this. And if you could enter into conversations with each other to help them discover this God through this kind of stuff, You'll be doing them a great service instead of just discarding their questions and conversations that they want to have. So I'm going to present to you five. I don't buy into all of them myself. It doesn't matter. I'm going to present them, and I'm going to let you wade through some stuff. That's where we're going, okay? 
So, why is this in the text, option number one? Option number one has to do with a global ethic. We, we have developed a global ethic as a culture based on the way that we've lived with each other and what we've seen in the world. And what they had as a global ethic back then is radically different than us. Their whole world, their whole ancient world was predicated on violence. And if you weren't violent, you were probably a slave. And so there had to be some level of, I'm going to have to stand up for myself and fight because there was so much violence in the culture. And then what happens is our culture looks back at them and starts judging the activity that we see when they didn't even have a category for what, what we understand. It didn't even exist for them. Now, that's, that's probably easy to wrestle with. But the problem is, we're not talking just simply about them as a culture We're talking about God. God who came along and found this violent culture, why didn't he ask them to live like we live now? Why didn't he do that? Because if you pay attention to the scriptures, if you've paid attention to your own life, you will discover that God meets you where you're at. He doesn't say, I'll I'll be involved in your life, but you're going to have to get good first before I do that. He meets you where you're at, and then he moves you along. Is there anything that would cause us to consider that maybe God was meeting this violent culture where it was at, and that he was finding a way to move it? There actually might be some stuff in the text that leads us to believe that that's happening. In Joshua chapter 10, verse 26, this happens, and this happened all over the ancient world. Then Joshua put the kings to death, exposed their bodies on five poles, and they were left hanging on the poles until evening. If you captured a kingdom, you would take that king, you would impale him on a pole, and you would let all of his people see him hanging there. It was meant to intimidate everybody else. If we're willing to do this to your king, what will we do to you? It drove fear into people's hearts. And so you have Joshua who's mimicking what's going on in his culture everywhere. Verse 27, at sunset, Joshua gave the order and they took them down from the poles, threw them into a cave where they had been hiding. That is not normal. That's odd behavior. He showed them a level of respect by taking them down and giving them a proper burial. You want to know how this would have played out in the ancient world? They would have left them up there until the birds picked the flesh off those bones. And it would have been a long-standing message for everybody around, don't mess with us. But Joshua was following Jewish customs when he took that dead body down and he buried it. He showed him some level of respect and it appears that God was meeting them where they were and moving them along. So that could be part of what we're seeing here. Does that explain why God could have them do what you're seeing because it was the kind of world they lived in, but he was intending to move them through a process where they would actually become the kind of kingdom that he wanted. Option number one, we'll let you wrestle with that. Option number two, there are some theologians who have said, you really have to pay attention, especially in Joshua, to what God says and what God doesn't say. Because what happens, they say, is that Joshua reports to everybody what God says, and there are times when it gets changed or altered. 
So let me give you an example. We're going to go back to Joshua chapter 6, verse 17, where it said, he's telling the people the city is to be devoted to the Lord. That word devoted could have been translated consecrated. I want you to consecrate this city to the Lord. And when that, that word is used, you have two choices. You either sacrifice something, which means you have to kill it, or you give it. You offer it as a gift to God to honor him. And you actually see this in the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 3, verse 5, they've not gone into the land. But Joshua says this. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Was he having them kill themselves? No. He was having them give themselves fully to God. And yet when God said, I want you to devote those people to me, he assumed that what you wanted was them killed. And, and the people behind this theory have said, listen, Joshua kept translating what God said through the cultural norms and kept doing the stuff that would have looked like the culture, but that's not what God initially told him to do. He told him to consecrate the city, but Joshua chose to burn it to the ground. Now, here's the, here's the problem I have. If it's a translation problem, don't you think after the first city gets burned to the ground that God goes, whoa, that's not what I meant. Here's what I meant. Let's not do that again. But you don't see that. You, you see city after city getting burned to the ground. So maybe this is part of it. Um, maybe it's not. But that a lot of people have uh, talked about this over the years. That's your option number two. Pay attention to what God says or doesn't say. Number three, there are people who have said God is good and just and he can do whatever he wants. So stop asking the questions and just get on with life. Now, here's the thing. I actually agree with the front side of that. I think God's good. I think he's just and I think he can do whatever he wants. I'm uncomfortable with saying we shouldn't have conversations about this. We shouldn't go exploring this because it's one of the ways that we discover stuff about God is to ask questions and to, and to put ourselves in those places where we're asking that kind of stuff. But there's almost a desire to say, don't even have the conversation. Don't, it's, it's like, it would be wrong for you to think or discuss if God should do this or not. Why? You can still believe that God is good and just and he can do whatever he wants and still explore. But maybe for you, this, this option does it. Yeah, that's good enough for me. He's good, just, do whatever he wants. And, and part of the reason they believe that God can do whatever he wants is because we've all sinned, every one of us. And what these people got was death, which is what we all deserve for our sin. And so they're right that that's the case. But I'm a little uncomfortable. I'll tell you, I'm a little uncomfortable with those of us who have received the gift from Jesus, like we've received grace, we're not going to face death, and yet we so comfortably look back and go, ha, they deserve it. They could die. Who cares? Let's move on. I, I, I don't know um, that I'm fully on board with that, even though I do think God can do whatever he wants. He's justified in doing it. Okay? Option number four. Um, you're, you're going to 
probably be a little more comfortable with this than most people because you're exposed to this stuff here at Waypoint quite often. There's a group in this pretty decent-sized group of people, theologians, who believe what you're looking at in Joshua is a type of literature that was very popular during that time, which would make sense, right? We, we have made the case that books like Genesis have things in it like chiasms and stuff like that. Why? Because they were written during that time period. They will bear marks of being written during that time period. And they think Joshua bears the marks of being written during that time period, and it possesses a type of literature that was popular at this time in history. It's called conquest literature. It's, it's uh, stories that were written to chronicle the exploits of a king or a kingdom. And the winner would write these, and uh, here's the problem with them. All of them included exaggeration, hyperbole, and just over-the-top kind of stuff. Embellishment. I knew it was a word I was missing. All of them. They actually have they actually have recorded stories, conquest stories, where a bunch of different people recorded the same event, and the winner of the story wrote it in such a way that you could barely recognize that it was part of everything else that everybody was describing. We destroyed everybody. They barely won, but they used that kind of overt language. And, and there's some belief that the stuff that you see in Joshua is that hyperbolized language. Uh, we destroyed the whole, the whole city. Well, if, that, if you're going to make the case that something like that happened, then there better be some evidence that I find in the Scriptures. And maybe there, maybe there is. Joshua chapter 8. Something weird is recorded. The reference is verse 33. That's the first time this group is mentioned, but it's not the right verse. I've actually got it wrong. It's in verse 35 is the one that I'm going to read you here. It says, there, were, um, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel. He's reading the Torah. Including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. Who are they? Who are the foreigners? Maybe Rahab and her family, but this sounds like a group of people. Look, if they're wiping everybody out, then how is it that there's a group of foreigners who are living among them? And so they've looked at this and said, listen, I, we don't know exactly what's going on here, but, but it's possible that what you're looking at is some hyperbole some over-the-top writing that would cause people to remember that God had been good and allowed them to be victorious, but that it's not actually how it went down. Um, I'll let you wrestle with that. I, I, I tend to want to look at the text and find something within it that would give me a stronger explanation than that, but there are a lot of people, like I said, who have found comfort in that. And it's not that I disagree with the culture coloring stuff. You know, you know I think culture shapes how we should read the Scripture. We do that a lot. So I think that could be part of it as well. But I want to I give you another option that just faces this um, in a little more difficult way. This is option five. God ordered it. He knew what would happen. And he was just in doing so. God ordered it. 
He knew exactly what would happen. He was just when he made this call. How in the world could we come to that conclusion? Well, we're going to have to do a little bit of history. All of these cities that these um, Israelites end up attacking had a couple things in common. They all worship two gods, and I'm going to say all, um, I could be wrong on one or two. I, the vast majority of them worship two gods. There, that's fairly safe. One was Molech. If you go and look this stuff up, there's every, every way to spell it, M-O-L-E-K-A-K-M-O-L-O-C-H. I don't know which one's right. Could not find anybody who had consensus on that. Um, Molech and Baal were the two main gods in this area. They had one um, practice in common that was really destructive. They both practiced child sacrifice. And they expected that you would take your oldest, your oldest, your firstborn child, and you would sacrifice that as a baby. Can I ask real quick, how many of you are firstborns in here? Can you raise your hand if you're a firstborn? Gone. Gone. In those cultures, you would not have existed, would not have happened. Now, now here's the thing. We actually know from history how this went down. I'd like to show you a little bit more. We're going to put up an artist's rendition so I can walk you through this. This is uh, Molac. It would have been made out of metal, and it was hollow. It was hollow here, and then you can see a little opening in the belly there. And you would put wood in the bottom of this thing, and you would stoke it until it got red hot. And you can see the hands outstretched, right? Outstretched at a little bit of an angle. When it got red hot, you would take a little baby, and you would lay it on the red hot hands right there. When the baby screamed, which inevitably it was going to do because it's being burned, we know this, we have historical accounts of this, I'm not making this up. The prophets of Baal told the family members that the expression that that baby made as it screamed was the smile of Baal. It was evidence that the God appreciated and valued that gift and was happy with what you were doing. So as that baby screamed and its skin began to melt, it would slide down the arms, drop into the fire, and die. They've uncovered mass graves, many, where they have found buried 10,000 baby skeletons in each one of these graves. There's evidence in the text that God knew about this and was attempting to be patient, hoping that they would change. In Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant, a blood covenant with Abram. I, we've talked about this before. He took, put animals on the side of a hill, their blood ran down, and then somebody was supposed to walk through that and get the blood on their garment, and they would be the one who would keep it. And Abram was scared to do it, and so God went first. It was a beautiful story. So you have this, you have this moment happening, and God reminds Abram at this moment, 
hey, this nation that I'm going to build with you, they're going to go into slavery for 400 years. But don't worry, the time is going to come where I'm going to bring them out of that slavery. And he says this in verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What's going on here? God's aware of what's going on, and he said, it's not reached a place where I have to do something yet. I can't give you the land right now. I'm trying to be patient. I'm trying to see if I can find a way to get them to stop doing this. And if you're wondering... If it's just the Ammonites, if you go to the bottom of this chapter, you're going to find all the names of these groups of people listed right there. They were all doing the same thing. And if you're like, okay, Blair, obviously it mentions a sin, but how do we know it's that sin? Well, it gets written right into the law. When God talks to Israel and says, I want you to live a certain way, I want you to do certain things, this is what he says to them in Leviticus 18.21. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Don't do this. I know they're killing children. I don't want you to follow in their footsteps. But I am trying to be patient with them. How long would your patience last? How many babies have to be killed that way before something in you says, this has to be stopped, period? 10,000? 50,000 babies? 100,000 babies? This went on for over 400 years. And it's one of these moments, it's one of these moments where It feels like to me that God can't win with us. Because we would look at a situation like that and we would say, look at those babies being killed, God. You're letting that go on. What kind of God are you that would allow that kind of stuff to go on? And the answer is, he's patient. Which I'm deeply grateful for. Because without that level of patience, I'm in trouble. Like, I, I need that level of grace and kindness. And, and God's displaying that with them. And yet as he displays his patience and kindness, people are upset. Why are you allowing this? Why would you let this go on? But here's the thing. God's patient, but it's long-suffering. It's not unending. And when it gets to a place where his patient, like, it's gone on long enough. It's time for justice. And when God steps up to deliver his justice, sometimes people then say, oh my word, look at what God's doing. How can a God do something like that? Let me ask you this. Can God bring about justice on this earth? And it be right. Can he do that? Is it okay if a just God acts justly? I think it is. 
And the problem is, we look at a situation like this, and we think, God, you're horrible for letting child sacrifice to go on. God, you're horrible for stopping child sacrifice. What are you thinking? Can't win, can he? But it doesn't matter. Because oftentimes what's happening is we're the ones who are playing God, trying to figure out the best way to solve this situation. And God has been sitting back going, you don't understand, I've given this 400 years. I've tried to work with him. I've tried to be patient. I've tried to give some grace. But, but have you ever considered... Have you ever considered that God was blessing the world by wiping that practice off the face of it so that you and I would not be still going about our lives thinking the only way for me to show devotion to God is if I sacrifice my child to God. I want that gone. I want that wiped out. I want that done. I don't want somebody later down the road to say, oh, when we were in our heyday, we were, we were doing great because we sacrificed children. We got to go back to that. No, I want the whole memory of that gone so that when somebody looks at this nation, at this place in the world, they would say, they sacrifice babies. This group doesn't. It looks like that's the right choice. Let's not do that. And God makes a statement based on his justice. Whether you like it or not, this aspect of God is going to play out in your life and my life too. We will someday stand before God and have to answer for the things that we've done. And I'm telling you what, I'm really grateful I'm going to be standing there with Jesus. Me standing there going, yeah, I did all of that, but I'm with Him. Like, yeah, that, yeah, I messed up big. All of that's true. But I, I, I got forgiven. He paid my sacrifice. I, I'm not, like, I'm, I'm behind him. I'm covered. And that's possible with you too. Now, I know this didn't, this wasn't the case for these people that we're reading. But 400 years, was it longer than you would have given people who were sacrificing babies that way? 400 years? See, our God is a good God. He's also a just God. And when he acts, it makes sense that I would trust that he knows more than I do, has playing it, has like played this out in his head in millions of ways that I could never have considered, has all the angles covered. And he's worthy of our trust. You would never get that if you didn't wrestle with this text. You would never get that if you decided to reject and walk away. You would never fully understand that what you're dealing with is God who deeply loves you, but who's also a just God. And by the way, if you think that just God is a bad thing, I'm just going to tell you right now, it, it does my heart well to know that the world we live in will not be left unanswered. It will, it's going to have to answer to God someday for the stuff that's going on. They're not going to get away with it. They're not going to get away with all the human trafficking. They're not going to get away with all the stuff that's happening. They'll, they'll stand before God and answer. The only question is, 
Have you aligned yourself with Jesus? Have you aligned yourself with Jesus? Because He's just, and you will answer. And if you have the protection of Jesus, it changes the story. But here and now, what we read, I just have decided that he had a bigger picture. He had a longer time of grace than I could have possibly given. And when he said it was time to do this, I've decided I'm going to trust him that he had the timing right. Now, I don't know what option you're at. And I hope that you'll wrestle. You'll have conversations with your family about this. What do you think? Which one of these makes the most sense? How do you, how do you see this in the text and wrestle with the discomfort and come to some conclusion? For you, though, if it does not make you run back and grab onto Jesus, I'm not sure what you're reading. Because this is a just God who will act to set things right. And when he does so, you better be holding on to Jesus when it happens. Can I pray with you? God, I'm grateful for the scriptures that sometimes bring to us really difficult things that we don't fully understand. Why in the world would this be in here? But it opens up an opportunity for us to explore, to ask questions, to find out that you are incredibly patient. We're so grateful for that level of patience that you show to us on a regular basis. But it's also true that you're just, that you will set things right, that these things that we do in the dark that we think can stay there will not that at some point you will settle the score. God, may we find great comfort in that, knowing that we have a Savior, Jesus, who paid that price for us, who took on the penalties that were due us. God, I ask that we would embrace who you are and not some designer cookie-cutter thing of who we want you to be instead. May we become followers of the one true God, the one who sent Jesus. We love you. May you change the way we think and talk and live with you. In Jesus' name, amen.